Hello and welcome to the Bulletin with UBS on Monocle Radio. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today, we have a special edition for you as we are meeting another of the inspirational thought leaders and innovators that UBS supports and celebrates through its Global Visionaries programme. This time, it's the turn of Angela Gishaga, CEO of Financing Alliance for Health, which delivers impactful financing solutions focused on improving health and inclusion outcomes. This African-led partnership and technical advisory fund empowers governments, donors and the private sector to strengthen, scale and sustain community health systems. So far, the organisation has helped secure more than $200 million for at-scale community health systems. Financing Alliance for Health embeds teams regionally and globally, generating evidence, securing finance and advocating solutions. Angela called in at Monocle Zurich HQ to explain more about her work and objectives and to remind us of a stark reality, that half the world's population lacks access to essential health services and that over half of that population live on the African continent. How can you support community health systems that suffer from a $4.5 billion funding gap every single year? Joining Angela in the Monocle Radio studios, as ever, a welcome returning guest on this programme, was Tom Hall, Global Head of Social Impact and Philanthropy at UBS. It was Angela who began by talking about the challenges that inspired the founding of the Financing Alliance for Health and the principles that underpin their compelling strategies to tackle them. You know, Africa has a huge health access problem and a huge funding problem as well. And we all know that 90% of the health needs on the continent could be addressed by strengthening primary health care system. And so the challenge that we are addressing is how do we transform the health system on the continent to be responsive to the burden of disease in a way that empowers the people who will use the system to be part of the system and deliver and shape the services that they're receiving, but also really how do we strengthen the role of the public sector to be the steward of the public health system on the continent and help them make and provide solutions in a conducive environment for all other players to be able to provide these services? So our focus is how do we strengthen, how do we change how health is financed on the continent so that we can reduce the fragmentation of funding, empower the communities to be part of those services that they are benefiting from, and then, of course, avert a whole bunch of illnesses and deaths as well. Well, yeah, let me just briefly bring Tom in here. Tom, we've spoken previously about why there's so much importance in addressing quality education, particularly in early years. We've talked about climate action, which obviously underscores everything at the risk of asking you, I guess, a facile point, because we can all understand why health and well-being is so critical. Tell us about this area and why, in particular, this is something that's galvanized many clients to reach out to you to get involved. It's interesting, I guess, looking at this idea of getting international funding to prioritise community health in some of the markets that Angela's talking about serving, that's a really interesting approach to deliver on that bigger ambition. Yeah, look, I think there's kind of two dimensions to this. So one is, if as a philanthropist or a social investor who cares about the world, we know 95% of our clients do and they want to solve these issues, you have to think about like the fundamental building blocks for human flourishing. That actually starts with healthcare, right? We, we still lose almost a million children in the first 24 hours of life each and every year. And 5 million die before the age of five, right? And that's primarily because they don't have access to basic primary healthcare. There's a billion people globally who have never seen a doctor 
or a nurse or anyone that even looks like that, right? They've literally never had healthcare, which is, you know, very hard for those of us in kind of developing economies to get our heads around. But actually, you know, we need to get our heads around it because we saw in things like COVID, the health of the least equal in the world directly affects all of us. So actually it is it is a problem for you and me. It is obviously a problem for somebody in, in rural Liberia. So so health is critical, but health that alone is not enough, right? Like you can make people healthy, they can survive. But survive for what? Which is why education is such a critical component for human flourishing. You you want people to thrive. You want them to achieve their full social and economic potential. You want them to be able to get the education they need to be a fantastic employee in a company like UBS or to be an entrepreneur. You also need to grow up in a system which has kind of fundamental governance and justice. And that's why we also think Things like child protection and ensuring that people grow up safe ultimately is a critical component that the, you know philanthropic investment should definitely look at because even a healthy, well-educated child who's subject to abuse or trafficking is not going to flourish, right? And then the planet, if you like, wraps around all of those things, and that's why environment and the climate and the ecosystem in which we live. You know, if you're subjected to a flood or you're forced into migration, then all those other things come into play. You know, we saw in Ukraine, you know. As soon as you have an issue with, with protection, with safety, children are suddenly migrating. They're going to be more likely to be trafficked. They're no longer being educated. Their healthcare suffers. So all of these things are integrated or a climate event can cause the same kinds of changes to happen. So that's why we see these things as very much interlinked, although you might think about them vertically in a distinctive sense. And ultimately, all of these issues are massive. They're huge problems and you can't solve them as an individual. You can't solve them on your own. We have to kind of build partnerships that think about what works in different contexts, and I guess as we'll hear in the conversation today, every context is a bit different. There is no silver bullet, but there's some themes, right? We kind of know broadly what works, and we then want to find pathways to drive that to scale. Angela, critically, that pathway in your case is about integrated healthcare programs, looking at community-based health systems. Perhaps you can tell us a bit about why that community-led approach is so fundamental, it's so critical. Indeed, it's essential to address the the, the problems that, that you and Tom have been mentioning. So the first thing is, really, we need to understand that we who are part of the community are aware about our health challenges and we don't just benefit from a health system. We want to be part of that health system. We want to shape the health journey and the experience we have within that health system. And so community health systems are around recognizing the community as clients and patients, but also co-shapers of the health system that they're going to benefit from. We don't want to have a situation of power dynamics of one's part of the system knows what is good for the other part of the system. You know, we want to acknowledge the value that both the healthcare delivery system and also the community offer to the health experience of those people who will be in that system. That's the first thing. The second is, the truth is, and, and Tom just mentioned it right now, you know, pandemics, outbreaks, diseases, they begin and they end in the communities. And so making sure that we are actually very aware of the fact that one, and we learned this with COVID, a pandemic starts as a health challenge, but quickly snowballs into an economic and social challenge. And so these gray areas that we have been creating across sectors, you know, health sector, the education sector, and the environmental sector, it's easier for us to work within sectors because it's easier for us to define boundaries. But the truth is, there's so much flow between these sectors, right? You know, if you think about agriculture, you know, if you think about food production, is that an agricultural sector 
but it's about nutrition. So that's also the health sector. But people need to eat well. And so that's also the education sector. So there are so many aspects of well-being and thriving that are actually multi and cross-sectoral. And so we are thinking about how do we integrate some of these services and the place and the platform to integrate is at the community level. So much of the services that are provided within the context that we work in are really disease focused and very vertical and that fragments service delivery. It fragments the money that comes into the system, which makes it very inefficient to strengthen the system. And so we're saying there is a platform of delivery where we can integrate these services and that's at the primary and the community level. And if we have that integrated lens, that will be very helpful to help the communities not just take part in benefiting from the services, but also being able to shape how they want to receive these services in an integrated manner as well. The third is the health sector has been talked about as a cost, you know, if you sink money into the health sector and then people get well, but you know, we need to actually change the mindset of people to understand investing in our health is an investment, you know, and how do we do that? We need to look at health as a development agenda and we need to articulate what is the return on investment. Our team at the Financing Alliance for Health has articulated what is the economic return on investment for community health systems. We are able to articulate on average across sub-Saharan Africa, a 10 to 1 return on investment for every dollar invested in a community health system to support a community health worker, you know, you're able to benefit from a $10 return on investment because of, one, the productivity of the population, two, the insurance effect that is by averting illnesses and, and morbidity, and three, you are creating actual jobs. Right. And those jobs have an economic multiplier effect. But then it's not just about an economic return on investment. There's a social return on investment as well. 70% of community health workers on average are women. And so it's not just you're delivering health, you're providing economic opportunities for women, paid opportunities for women, mostly who are in the rural or marginalized communities. And again, that is a development agenda as well. You're with an economic income, then you're able to alleviate people from poverty. So when people ask me, you know, what SDG does Financing Alliance for Health Everyone just assumes it's the SDG3. But the truth is, we are working on gender issues. We are working on educational issues. We are working on poverty issues. And as Tom said much earlier, we are not doing this alone. Our role is to support the government. Our role is to advise the government as a strategic and technical advisor so that they can put the policies in place that are conducive for their countries so that every other stakeholder, be it private or philanthropic, can be able to invest in health systems in a manner that is actually meaningful for the population. An incredible ambition, an amazing testament to the work that you've achieved already. And you make such a powerful case on a sort of moral basis, on an economic basis, on a social basis, Angela. I wonder, how do you go about, though, involving and engaging that community on a grassroots level? Because there is often still some scepticism, a bit of mistrust. Sometimes it's harder to communicate some of those powerful economic arguments on a super local level. Is that a big challenge that you encounter? And how do you and your colleagues go about spreading that word and maybe overcoming if there is some reticence or a bit of scepticism? How do you go about overcoming that? 
That's a very good question. And when people hear that we work on a systems level and we are advisors to government, everyone always assumes there's a power dynamic that exists there. But we have been intentional from day one to make sure we involve the people who are on the ground day to day delivering services. And how do we do that? We create spaces and actual spaces and a voice for community health workers to shape policy and strategy. What that actually looks like is every time we are supporting a government to write a strategy or develop a policy, we have right writing teams and working groups and we have stakeholder forums and we do not have any gathering that does not have a community health worker because what we do not want to have is bureaucrats and technocrats who are well intended putting in place policies that are impractical on the ground level. So from the policy and from the policy level and from the strategy level, community health workers are at the table contributing in the comfort that they know, in the language that they know what they actually need. When we cost these community health systems in country, we have our team follow community health workers on a day-to-day basis to understand how much time are you spending on this? What are the resources you use per day to deliver services for different populations? What is the cost of that? So then the costing of that system is bottom up. It's based on the reality of the service delivery. It's not just based on economic models and plugging in and, and people in a well air-conditioned room having guesswork of how does it take for a community health worker to deliver services? No, it's we shadow the community health worker in the community delivering the services to understand the entire system that supports that community health worker. And when we get that data, we're able to truly cost the service delivery of the community health system, but also understand the bottlenecks. The third thing, we provide opportunities and platforms for community health workers to share their experiences in their own voices, right? We may be close to them in terms of seeing how they implement, but the truth is no one can really articulate someone's story better than the person who is in that story and being able to share that for themselves. And so the three things we do is, one, we have the Celebrating Everyday Heroes. Here is where we actually codify the community health worker experiences in their voices. A health worker week, we'll be celebrating having a campaign. You'll see a docu-series that we have shot following community health workers in their home visits, delivering the care, them telling us what their challenges are, what they want to see from the system and the kind of support they want to get from the government. And the third is when we do have these platforms, either at a regional level or at a global level, on conferences or panels, again, we provide opportunities for community health workers to come and share in the way that they are comfortable. We do have a language challenge. You know, we want to use all the buzzwords in the, you know, the development sector, in the social sector. But the truth is, the solutions can be mentioned in a very simple way that then can't really shape the policies and that's very powerful. So that's how we make sure that community health worker voice is elevated, is, is celebrated, it's recognized and actually truly shapes the policies and strategies and the investment solutions that are deployed for their systems. And this sounds again like this powerful catalyzing effect of collaboration. We need the innovators, we need those people coming up with the solutions like you have done, Angela, but you also need this broader partnership collaboration to catalyze and make sustainable systemic impact. And Tom, if I can bring you back in here, it is extraordinary to me that we keep coming back to this idea of truly catalyzing collaborative impact. And I guess that runs necessarily through all of the testimonials we hear, because that is the only way to definitively make the kind of sustainable change that's required. 
Yeah, no, it absolutely is. And for me, this kind of almost a spine chilling moment listening to some of the things that Angela's working on, because I remember 10 years ago when I first started at UBS, persuading a client to invest $200,000 in what was at the time a fairly crazy idea, which was to train local community members who maybe were semi-literate, you know, maybe they'd been to school up to the age of nine, to be the equivalent of the local GP or frontline doctor. And at the time, people were like, would you go to that doctor? You know, but it worked, right? Like, and that was that was the kind of catalytic test capital. And obviously, happening in other contexts too, of proving that you could train people in the local community to know the local community, to reassure the local community to start accessing healthcare. And within within eighteen months, those community health workers had proven through a randomised control trial that they were reducing infant mortality, they were reducing maternal mortality. Simple things like diagnosing and treating diarrhoea. I mean, that is the level of simplicity in the community we're talking about. You know, fast forward a couple of years later, during the Ebola crisis, the government suddenly realized they needed to have community health workers because many of the communities, and this goes back to the kind of history of this very paternalistic, top-down healthcare model, you know, people thought in some of these communities that Ebola was being bought in by the people in the hazmat suits. Right. So if you don't have a community representative, you know, and like and trust telling you, no, no, you need to do these things, whether it's Ebola and subsequently COVID, then the health messages don't get there and the disease spreads. Right. So it's so important to have that community healthcare model. So we've known what works for, I would say, five, six years now. And what we now need to work out, and this is what Angela and others are doing, is how on earth do you scale it? Because if we know there's a 10 to 1 economic advantage for having community healthcare workers, then why aren't we already funding them everywhere? And the reason we aren't already funding them everywhere is we've not designed the financing mechanism that allows people to put the upfront capital in today to get the return back over the next 10, 20 years. And that is, it's complicated because those returns are coming from you know, multiple different dimensions. So capturing them and paying them back to, to an investor is, is not easy. But we have seen innovations. I mean, a good example actually in healthcare is something like the ifim Garvey model, which we're trying to, to rapidly expedite vaccines. And there, you know, it's just the, it's the known saving for a health ministry. If you vaccinate today, you're not spending money on treating to certain diseases or filling up your hospital beds tomorrow, right? So ifim Garvey borrowed all the money up front to do the vaccines, and then that just gets paid back from a guaranteed revenue from health budgets over the next whatever it might be 10 years. But if we can do that for vaccines, which is one dimension, why can't we do that for things like healthcare workers and the entire health system? And that's where I'm so heartened to see that we've really moved on from interventions on the ground. Now we're talking at a systems level, which is, okay, right, how do we actually scale this stuff up and come up with the instruments? And they're going to be different in each context. And sometimes that's frustrating for people because we want a one size fits all. But you know, policy is different in different countries. So then the instrument might need to be different in different countries. But you know, aggregating that up to something that we can rapidly get the capital that's needed to really provide healthcare for all in their local community as soon as possible. Well, Angela, let me come back to you then. With yes. that onus on scalability and sustainability mm -hmm. of solutions, what do you need? What does the support that the Financing Alliance for Health, for you and your colleagues who are doing this amazing work on the ground, mm -hmm. that support that you need at this stage, what does it look like? Before I come to the what we need, I'd like to share just on what Tom has ended with in terms of there are solutions that are in place and we are designing that are able to provide the capital and structure the capital in a way that we can actually fund and scale up the impact that we're talking about. And as Tom said, you know, sometimes people want a one size fits all that is not actually based on their on ground realities. And what we've done so far through the partnerships that you're seeing that are very important is we have been supporting government tap into 
financial mechanisms and approaches that are able to help them scale up these community health systems across the continent. And the first thing is the government is putting money, its own money, domestic resources to these systems because the government investment is very important in being very catalytic in the system, but also crowding in other types of investments from private sector and other players. So the, the role of the government investment is absolutely important. That said, as, as Tom mentioned, when we are trying to crowd in other players, you know, we need to talk about leverage. Everyone wants to know, okay, if I'm investing in the system, what is the return? And am I able to create value and then appropriate that value from the system? And initiatives such as the Africa Frontline First initiative, which we have come together with a coalition of partners to put together, is one of those avenues where we are able to actually provide that leverage for different people who are investing in the system as well. So what do we need as Financing Alliance for Health? One, we need to align our investments to government priorities. The government has already set its priorities and its health agenda for the country. And in as much as we may have areas of interest as people who are not part of the government system, as stakeholders who want to support the government system, we need to make sure our investments are actually in line to the priorities that are set by the government in policy and strategy. That will reduce fragmentation of how things are funded and help governments really strengthen the systems. Two, we need to have a common voice in advocating for these systems that will be able to avert millions of illnesses and deaths within the continent. The truth is we have shown and proven time and time again that community health workers and community health systems work as part of an integrated primary health care system. So how do we join our voices in advocating so that we are able to jointly invest in these systems? The third is we need to have people coming together and collaborating with us to deploy solutions that actually work on ground. The Africa Frontline First has already proven and, and has early successes. We just recently launched a $100 million catalytic fund with the Global Fund. And there is where we were able to tap into $25 million of private capital. And then through leverage, we were able to unlock money within the Global Fund. And we were also able to unlock money within country grants. And that means that for every dollar, we were able to get a four a leverage ratio of about four, which that means that if you're investing $1 into this catalytic fund, which is already being confirmed, you are already able to get the returns of $4 for the investment that you made. So we again are proving over and over again that we have innovative financing mechanisms that can actually be able to crowd in different types of players who have different types of money from different sources and bring that together in a way that the government can leverage to scale up their systems and make them sustainable, but then also meet the needs of those who are investing in that system. So come and join us. Again, Africa Frontline First is one of the many solutions that are out there. There are many amazing people doing great work on the continent. Many of them are global visionaries as well in this space. Right now, we need collective action. We don't need everyone doing their own thing in small spaces. We need to make sure that we are coming together and strengthening the system as a whole. The system is what is able to sustain us, is what is able to protect us in times of unpredictable situations like pandemics and outbreaks, right? It's not the Rolls-Royce version of health service delivery you've built for one disease because then we are hit by another disease that's not the disease you're supporting. We are all vulnerable. And, you know, no one is safe until everyone is safe, right? And what helps us to be safe is a strong health systems. And so as Financing Alliance for Health as well, we are asking people to come and join us in terms of 
helping us design and, and collaborate and invest in the Africa Frontline First Initiative and join us in delivering alongside government their health priorities so that we can have a strengthened health system that is responsive and resilient within the continent and is integrated to the wider health system as well. An amazing call to action, Angela. And just very briefly, Tom, a last word. Let's repeat the call to action as you see it. Again, you have this amazing position, this amazing vantage point. You get to engage not just with the visionaries, recognise their work, support them, but to see the impact of what they do on the ground, which must be so exciting because there's so much doom and gloom about the scale of challenges. But to see these consequential developments must be thrilling for you. Give us a final call to action to listeners out there who say, Angela's words move me. I want to do something. What should that look like? I think ultimately, the only way we're going to have any impact, the only way we're going to try and remotely have a hope of addressing some of these issues is in partnership with each other. We have to work together. We have to do that. And again, I mentioned on another podcast that I love collecting quotes and a, a, a data scientist called Richard Fisher was looking at like the, the longitudinal impact of our choices. This quote that I love from him, which is your own choices will ripple ahead for centuries. And I think I just encourage people to make the choice to start partnering with people, to start building those movements of people that can genuinely change the world. Because as Margaret Mead said, that's the only thing that ever has when we start partnering. And, you know, we at UBS, if we've got our collectives, we see ourselves as a platform to connect people for a better world, people with ideas, with people with resources and capital and the skills to take those ideas to scale. And we want to do that. But of course, we're not the only people who did that, right? So whether it's with us or with somebody else, what I'd encourage people to do is start partnering, start working together, because we can actually address these issues at scale. I believe that fundamentally because I've seen it. And I think that that's what's so powerful when you meet these visionaries, when we go and see it in action on some of these collective insight trips, you know, you can start to catch the, the vision that this is possible. It's it's not beyond our intellectual capabilities or even our knowledge base. It's just a question of finding the right partners and sticking the course, and then we'll drive these solutions to scale. Tom Hall, and before that, the brilliant Dr. Angela Gishaga, bringing us to the end of this special edition of The Bulletin with UBS here on Monocle Radio. For more about all the global visionaries in the UBS programme, head to ubs.com and search Global Visionaries. And you can find out more about the inspirational work Angela and her colleagues are doing by heading to financingalliance.org. This is The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle Radio. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.